Welcome to this week's episode of Flight Toot Friday. Nathan Shakespeare with me, as usual, is Sam Hafensteiner. This week we're going to be talking about the Humboldt Rescue on the uh, 6561 from September 2019. A pretty crazy rescue with the U.S. Forest Service uh, crew out there was able to medevac two injured firefighters and get them to safety. Uh, we got a lot of content here, so uh, we're actually broken up into two parts, and uh, we'll just get right into it with part one. All right, guys. Good afternoon. I guess it's good evening out here. Probably afternoon still there. So this is Sam Hafenstein with me, Nate Shakespeare. Uh, you guys just want to quickly say who's on the other end of the line here? Yep. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Derek Schmel. Lieutenant Junior Grade Adam Oldby. AS21 Graham McGinnis. AMT2 Tyler Cook. All right. Cool, guys. Um, well, we uh, thought we'd start the segment off with a little bit of uh, beverage talk here as we... Uh, discuss your story. So I'll just I'll just go with mine. So I'm drinking a old majestic. Uh, looks like a blonde ale. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, come from uh, here in Mobile, Alabama, Brewing Company. You guys drinking anything fun out there? I know Derek, you're on duty tonight. Uh, tonight, this evening, we are enjoying uh, Humboldt County, California's own Mad River Brewing Steelhead Extra Pale Ale. Glad you're drinking the beer, not trying the other stuff out of Humboldt. <laughs> hey. the Uh, first we've heard of that one (laughs) never heard that one before um hey derek let's let's start with you what's your background man uh so yeah i'm on my third tour actually on an extension here in Hubble bay so uh end in the near my third tour aviation tour anyways uh started out in los angeles before it closed down then went to uh hitron and here awesome what about you adam uh, I was a non-ray on Coast Guard Cutter Bellwell. Uh, three years on that. Uh, AMT in New Orleans, and then got picked up for OCS. Went that route straight from OCS, went to flight school, and then this is my first uh, pilot tour. That's right. It, you were right out, out of the course, right, uh, during this case? Yeah, so the case was my first SAR case as a pilot, actually first aviation SAR case, so... Not the first duty, but first case, like shortly after first getting back from the case, course. Yeah, first, first uh, actual voice and whatnot. Nice. Nice. Graham, tell us about yourself, man. Uh, I've got 12 years in. Uh, my first first tour was at the illustrious Cape May Gymnasium at their boot camp as a non-rate. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. I spent a little time at, uh, also at Station Cape May uh, as a non-rate, and... Then uh, went to ASC school, went to New Orleans for almost six years, and then came here and am on my uh, my second year here. That's awesome. Uh, Cape May is super sought after right after graduating from Cape May. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everyone can't wait to come back. Yeah, I bet. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, last but not least, Tyler, uh, uh, is this your first First air station? Yeah, it is. Uh, I was in Chesapeake, Virginia with ComCom as an on-rate for three years. Went to AMTA school, and then here I am on an extension out at Humboldt. Got about six years in now. That's awesome. And th- it was your first case as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> Definitely uh, a real one for sure. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Similar, um, did you and Adam get there about the same time? No, I, this is, yeah, I got here around the same time as Mr. Schramel. 
Oh, nice, nice. Okay, so just took a little bit in Sleepy Humboldt to get a uh, a case, but it was a good one. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, just so before we start diving in, just like the overview of this case, um, you guys went up into the Trinity Alps and and rescued two firefighters uh, in the middle of a forest fire. That's that's what it pretty much boils down to. Pretty much. All right. Well. Let's uh, let's dive in. Tell us about that duty night. Like, where where did it start? Had you had ice cream yet? Or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. We uh, it actually, I think a Thursday night duty uh, here. So we had a it's just a night hoisting flight um, training flight that we had just landed from, and I I saw him followed up with uh, one of our uh, he's departed now, but one of the containers act as I was finishing up all this. He's like, hey. My friend just called and said, you guys might be going on a case. And uh, I hadn't heard anything yet, so I kind of walked over to the command center. And uh, on my way to the command center, they piped us um, to come over for a possible medevac. Uh, so we all kind of started heading over there uh, to get some information and um, uh, just kind of start planning it all. And then uh, we got to the command center, and it was uh, not great details, uh, which can kind of be the case with a lot of our interagency stuff because um, they were working through several people. So they actually, you know, could talk to somebody on the ground there. So the details of uh, the, the survivors or the um, firefighters was not great. Uh, we just knew, knew, basically knew that two of them were, were hurt. Um, one of them had a leg injury and one of them had a neck injury, um, but we didn't really know the extent of it right off the bat. Um, so we kind of started talking to our ops boss, uh, and things weren't looking too good for us, uh, risk versus gain wise, for them to approve of us launching out there at that point. Um, it actually took uh, Commander Hillary was our ops boss at the time, and he got a, I think a number for the uh, dispatcher that was talking to the incident commander on scene, and finally got some good details for us uh, that they had both been hit by a car battery sized boulder that had uh, rolled down the hill. Um, I think it hit the first guy in the leg, um, broke his femur, and then uh, hit the second guy. He tried to turn away from it, hit him in the back and in the back of the head, and uh, I think knocked him him unconscious. And the uh, uh, the one with the broken leg, I think, was the one showing signs of shock at that point. Uh, so once we got that info, uh, the game definitely started going up for us quite a bit. Uh, risk was definitely high. Um, they didn't have too good of a we had a position, but, um, and, uh, Ryan can attest to this, that the Trinity Alps, like, you know, a change in 50 feet laterally could be 2000 feet of elevation change in the Trinity Alps. It's that steep. So, um, we didn't really know, have any idea yet the altitude or elevation that the uh, case was going to be at. Um, we just kind of knew about where it was and kind of the general terrain of it, um, from looking on for flight. Yeah. Uh, so we started, uh, sorry, ahead, let me yeah, let me interrupt you real quick, Derek, just so that uh, if our listeners are following on four flight, like you, you guys are out of McKinleyville, right, at the airstay, and and were you, and I'm seeing Weaverville. Is that kind of where you were, or just north of Weaverville, up in the Trinity Alps? Yeah, I think we were just northwest of Weaverville. If you look on uh, four flight and find uh, Diedrich, yeah, if you see a tiny little town called Diedrich, west of Weaverville, we were close to that. The okay. valley directly north of there, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so, yeah, so from that point, we were kind of, uh, uh, the uh, our ops boss, I think, was calling um, 
Captain Schlegel was uh, taking our CO calls at the time. So they were, I think, uh, talking uh, amongst themselves as well as the Admiral da- down at D11, uh, just because it was going to be a high-risk case. Um, but as a crew, we were kind of trying to come up with a plan. I mean, obviously, this was vastly out of our realm of experience. So um, we were trying to think of anything we could. I think Graham at that point had mentioned uh, starting to take stuff out of the plane. I was reluctant, and you know, this is one of things I think back back on and re- regret. I was reluctant because I didn't, at this point, I wasn't, uh, I didn't know we were going to pretty much commit ourselves uh, for the rest of our duty day to be inland. So I didn't want to completely desar our plane in case you know something came up later in the night offshore somewhere that we got diverted from or something like that. So that's definitely a decision I regret um, now, but uh, we did talk about that. Uh, Tyler and Graham uh, talked about bringing extra trail lines, uh, weight bags, that sort of thing, which definitely proved to be uh, vital to the success of the uh, mission. Uh, yeah, we I think we originally assessed our risk as medium as a crew just because uh, we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into at that point. Right. Um, but behind the scenes, Commander Hillary uh, was definitely, in his mind, assessing it as a high-risk mission. Um, but they did uh, give us uh, the green light to uh, go launch on it, and uh, we kind of made our way to the plane and uh, got ready to go. Yeah, that's Share awesome. Yeah, do you guys have any experience flying out there? Have the crew, have you guys flown in the mountains out there? So it's a, we frequently fly the general area, but never at night and uh, not this exact location. Um, kind of what I would we, say. We fly over the area during the day on night because it's a great place to do sightseeing. Yeah. It's beautiful up there. <laughs> when there's no forest fires. When there's no forest fires, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what else were you guys thinking getting ready to go? It sounds like uh, talked about DSAR in the plane kind of, or like kind of missionizing it for, for the mission you're trying to do, add a little extra gear. Uh, anything else you guys were thinking about? I ran some numbers uh, for our COD data. Um, we really, we took the uh, GPS position they had given us and plugged it into Google Maps, honestly. They have the terrain feature on Google Maps to kind of get a ballpark of uh, elevation. Um, I had never, we always talk about, you know, what we do for a Todd card, uh, for different situations. And, uh, I knew that it popped out the no data for the torque numbers for anything above a couple thousand feet. So I knew those numbers weren't really any good. Um, I think the one thing that ended up being money for, uh, planning purposes was the weight to hover out of ground effect with a 10% torque margin ended up being pretty spot on and uh, made it easy for, you know, fuel planning. Um, so I think that was the one number that kind of looked at, but that was really yeah, where I went. So. We're trying to follow along at home here. It sounds like um, it's it's like maybe 50 miles to the east. So it's not, not necessarily a ton of gas to get there. And like, it, it sounds like the airport's in the area you have fuel available, so you don't necessarily need a ton of gas for the transit, just for the work? Correct, yeah. Um, and it, so it, the, the point on the map also, it, it was about 5,500 feet or so. Um, so yeah, I think it wasn't so much getting there with enough gas, it was to be at the correct 
hoagie weight, you know, was our real challenge that we were looking at initially. Yeah. Um, Tyler, what was going through your head, man? It's your first case as a, uh, as a mech. Oh man. Um, my mind was running, you know, but, uh, we had a job to do. So I was just trying to stay in the game, get everything ready, pre-flight the plane, get it outside, get everything that we need, grab extra trail lines, grab chem lights, whatever I thought that we could possibly need. I was just making sure that we had it. Yeah. Uh, you know, grabbing MVGs and stuff like that. But of course we had zero moonlight. So MVGs were kind of here and there, but, uh, yeah, just, I guess nerves, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm assuming uh, you guys have a pretty robust, uh, vert surface program out there in Humboldt, don't you? Oh yeah, for sure. It's, uh, definitely, we've got some really solid training spots for, uh, our vertical surface practicing and, so, I mean, we get plenty of, I wouldn't say we get plenty of practice, but we definitely practice very well. Yeah. That's so, awesome. I don't want to like yeah. put the cart before the horse too much, but um, do you guys get to do much uh, like pretty high, uh, like long cable length vertical hoist in, the, in your training program or not necessarily? No, nothing at all. I think our, first, our longest might be down at Ronerville and it's maybe a hundred feet. Okay. Yeah, that's so that's pretty good. Really yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's that's about the only thing that can help you out, but it's more or less a steep slope. It's uh, not really any kind of super bad terrain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we heard from everybody except you, Graham. Um, I mean, you're the guy who's going down on the hook. What were you thinking? I mean, you already mentioned, uh, Hey, let's, let's strip the aircraft if we can. What else? Anything else? Yeah. So, well, that idea mainly came from, uh, it just kind of crossed my mind through some stuff that I had seen in the Gulf during hurricane operations. Uh, a lot of, a lot of times we would see folks, you know, just kind of come to the realization, Oh man, we don't need to have half this stuff on here. And, uh, and you know, what can we take off? So that's kind of where that idea came from. Uh, during the initial call, the things I was starting to think about, actually, Mr. Schmel was like, Graham, you know, what do you, what do you want to wear? And I told and I was, I was, uh, I was brand spanking new to the unit. Um, I'd only been here for a couple months and my inland SAR gear had just shown up that night. I literally <laughs> like before the flight, I was like a kid, you know, at the candy, like basically Christmas morning, oh, yeah. opening up all these boxes with just this fresh smelling SAR gear, you know, new jackets and shoes and boots. So new watch probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And then, so, you know, I, we get this call and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm wearing the inland SAR gear. Like that's happening. Oh yeah. So nice. got to bust out that fresh Arcteryx jacket. Nice. Uh, so I started thinking about that kind of stuff. Like, you know, what's, what's appropriate to wear. I mean, we're going to respond to a, uh, to a fire. So I'm not trying to go in a dry suit, but the same thing was, was being said, like Mr. Schmel said earlier, we really didn't know where this was going to go. The whole intention upon launch was that we were really just going to go look at it and see if there was something we could do. Uh, cause kind of the information we're getting was spotty and the conditions weren't great. So really our whole intention was we were going to go take a look at it and see if this was even feasible. Yeah, so the, the fact that we left in dry suits, just kind of like, you know, well, yeah, exactly. Like it just kind of, it kind of reinforces the fact that like, we really didn't think that we were going to be doing this all night and that we'd really be committing to it. We, we thought we'd be coming back here at some point and, 
having to stand duty ready for offshore stuff. So my mind was in that set. Like we're going to not necessarily like talking to the flight surgeon about like the injuries and like uh, a ton of detail. You're like, well, I wonder if we're even going to like do anything other than fly over. Well, no, we no for sure. We, we did do that. As a matter of fact, like one of the first things we did when we got in, uh, into the comms room is because there wasn't a lot of uh, information. One of the first things that I asked for was that we start getting one of the OSs to get the flight surgeon on the, on the phone. Because as soon as I heard that, it, you know, once we got confirmation that it was a femur injury, you know, my, as you know, EMT skills kicked in and I was like, man, that's for sure a life threatening, you know, injury. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can bleed your entire body's volume of blood into the cavity of your femur. Um, you know, if you nick an artery in there, so you can bleed out and never see a drop of blood on the ground. So that was concerning to me. So that kind of was part of the big push that we gave to the command um, was that, you know, although it just sounds like a leg injury and maybe a guy got knocked in the head like this, you know, the, the concerns for real life threatening injuries are real. So that, that definitely helped us push. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do the swimmer shops typically have any extra medical equipment or anything, or we just got the same old bag for every case? So that kind of is, that's going to be unit dependent. Um, a lot of medevac heavy units. Like I, I can only speak from the experience in New Orleans, but medevacs are almost every other day there. So our EMT training and our EMT tool bag, you know, is a, a little more expanded than other units. Um, the units where you don't see a lot of it, there is extra gear that we keep. Um, and you just kind of, you kind of have to ask for it or know the situations where that's going to be appropriate. Yeah, that makes sense. Sweet. Well, I, I mean, uh, we, we definitely built it up. Uh, let's, let's get into it. So you guys took off and then what? Yeah, just, sorry. I'm going to uh, just kind of cover one more thing. Um, so yeah, just on the medevac issue, uh, once commander Hillary called and was actually get uh, more straight communication with the incident commander, um, and you found out the guys were like inside the fire, um, the fire line pretty much and non-ambulatory. That's when we kind of switched gears from medevac to SAR. Um, and we didn't wait for a uh, flight surgeon recommendation or anything. We just kind of hit the road at that point. Um, and yeah, so we took off, uh, we initially filed because it was like quarter mile and overcast to 200, pretty typical for Humboldt. Sounds beautiful. Um, we walked to the, walked to the plane. We could see, um, luckily the fog only covered about three quarters of the airfield. We could see the mountains to the east. Uh, so we just uh, special V VFR out of here um, to the east over the mountain and started heading out there. And our original plan was there was two uh, reach uh, EMS helicopters that were on deck in Grand Junction, I think is the little town um, just south of where uh, the fire was. And they, they were originally called to try and get these guys, but there was no landing zone. And uh, the only, um, the only thing we had was, uh, was about a 20 by 30 foot, uh, clearing that the firefighters had cut trees down with their chainsaws for us to hoist to. So the reach helicopters, their intent was to stand um, Grand Junction. And then once we would pull each guy up one by one, we would deliver them to the reach helicopters mm-hmm. about five miles away. Oh, nice. um, so the firefighters actually, they, they anticipated this as a medevac and they cut down some trees to make some room for you guys to work. Yep, exactly. Um, just, yeah, they didn't, there was no other option really for them to hike the guys out. Um, they were both at this point, both on, uh, makeshift backboards. Um, and just due to the terrain, they couldn't hike them out. It was about a two mile hike and, uh, terrain was so steep that, and we'll kind of touch on that later, but, uh, yeah, we ended up kind of being their only option. 
Um, but yeah, we were flying out there and you know, once we got away from the fog here, it was not too bad. Uh, we kind of climbed up to like six or 7,000 feet to uh, get over all the mountains. And we just kind of, as a crew, were trying to like game plan any option we could think of. Like, I think our hoist brief was like 20 or 30 minutes. Well, not that long. So it didn't take us that long to get there, but a solid 15 minutes long, just trying to think of different uh, scenarios and stuff like that of what we might have to do, which none of those scenarios proved to be <laughs> anything <laughs> what we thought. Right. But anyways, we were talking as a crew, which is the important thing. Um, but yeah, we're flying out there and I'd say like halfway probably, um, uh, we we're on NBGs at that point and you just kind of saw this big, big glow, you know, um, off the horizon of, you know, this mountain on fire in front of us. And, uh, so we flew towards that because, uh, we knew it was, uh, where the fire was is where the guys were. So it was pretty, not a whole lot of searching going involved at this point. Um, but we got closer, uh, started descending down and then, uh, Kind of the, there was one big ridge in front of us that we uh, had to go around. We went to the right of it and then turned up the uh, the canyon towards where uh, the position was. And that's I know when you know my stomach kind of sank was looking up this canyon at just a whole ridge on fire. And uh, at that point, like immediately upon entering that canyon, uh, the NBG started blurring out a lot, and it was like every visual illusion I'd ever looked at in those ICWs that we, that we do every year was like immediately a factor. Um, I was struggling just with basic air work. Uh, Adam, the left seat was you know, having to correct me the whole time because it was just tar- hard to tell where the horizon was with, you know, zero illumination and then a bright fire that's blurring the goggles out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know my confidence greatly dropped at that point and we haven't even found the firefighters yet. And this is like uh, 11 o'clock or 11.30 or something. It's pretty late at night, isn't it? Yeah. So I think we took off at 11.57. No. Uh, I don't know. We, we landed from our training flight around 10. I want to say it was a little over an hour after that that we took off. Oh, nice. Um, so you guys so yeah, we had 2.0 on us before we took off um, just in the training flight. And then uh, you guys got anything for our in route? No, yeah, just like what he said, just like the uh, all the night things that we talk about. I can't remember the acronym right now, but all of those things were like, oh, yeah, that's, these are all things we could practice a whole lot more because it, it makes a lot of sense now looking at it. I remember turning left up into that canyon and like it was, it was just a very large area that I really had no idea how, how large it was. It's about three miles wide, ridge to ridge, but it didn't leave a whole lot of room for uh, maneuvering inside of it. So I don't want to say like I was hoping we weren't going to hit anything. I was very confident. All those nice things that we learned to, uh, you know, size distance. Right. Yeah. The uh, lack of uh, uh, detail, all those things. Yeah, um, for they do uh, help. They do help for sure. And and then for some <laughs> visual perspective, guys, real, real quick, uh, it is a north south facing canyon. Is that where we're in? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I want. Okay. I want to say it's like if you want to plug it in, forty degrees, fifty four minutes, and one twenty three west. Wow! I looked it up yesterday. <laughs> I was looking at it. But for the record, he has nothing in front of him. There, yeah. is, there is no paper. There is no EFB. Weird flex, but okay. He just rattled that off for you. <laughs> but yeah, so it's on. It's on the seared into your memory side of that canyon. 
Uh, okay, east side. About halfway up the ridge. So. Awesome. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think in the back? Tyler, could you see anything? <laughs> Not really. I was constantly jumping back and forth from NVGs to no NVGs just due to exactly what they were talking about. There was a lot of different stuff going on visually just between the fire and then the utter darkness on the other side. So yeah. uh, whenever we got close, I took off, took off my NVGs because we started doing this circular route just looking for these guys to see where they were. And so whenever we would get close, they said that they were shining a flashlight up at us. So honestly, we were so close to the fire, it was hard to distinguish what it was on NVGs or where it was. So yeah. I was taking off my NVGs and looking the fire line and looking a little bit further down from the fire line. And I mean, but whenever we turned away from that fire, it was terrifying because on NVGs, you saw a ridge there, but if you took them off, it was, it was black. You couldn't see anything. That's crazy. Yeah. Talk to me about comms. Do you guys have good comms in the mountains in Humboldt or um, like in Michigan when I was at Traverse, when it was a 65 unit, we had like 800 megahertz and it worked phenomenally with all the state folks and local. And uh, I imagine that's not necessarily the case. You probably don't have good comms with like sector or them or, or what do you have? So we, uh, we did have comms with the uh, incident commander on the ground. We were able to talk to him with no problem. We uh, typically use HF to talk to sector when we're in that area. It's, it's an area that, like, uh, when we're talking to uh, ATC, Seattle Center, they, they say, we may lose you for 10 minutes. Let us know if anything happens type deal. Like, it's, like it's just kind of a calm, dead zone. And that's true for sector as well. Even HF, while we were in the valley, was uh, we, we get a couple words in every time they checked in. But that was really it. So, so no backup. Yeah, that was it. No, HF, HF was all we had. So, got it. The incident commander, I guess, could relay messages if we need, really needed to. So that was kind of one of the things we could do. But nice yeah, job. luckily we have a good uh, set of presets for working with our uh, interagency stuff. Uh, so it was actually one of our presets is what the incident commander was on, which was definitely helpful. So if we didn't have the preset. Um, they're all like different transmit receive frequencies and stuff like that. So having a good, uh, you know, good relationship beforehand with our other agencies was definitely, uh, uh, proved to help us out yeah. for comms and plays that night. Um, Graham, from your perspective, I mean, you probably hadn't done something like this before, especially coming from New Orleans, but what was your, what was your risk, uh, assessment when you, when you turned into that Canyon, what were you thinking? Yeah, since I got here, my risk assessment went went through the roof. You know, like I'd never seen fog or mountains or flown in anything like that. So this whole area was a little bit of an eye-opener for me. Flying into it, going into the canyon, I was just a sightseer. You know, I was, I was really just kind of taking in the sights because I really didn't understand until, especially until we dipped in and started basically flying in a salad bowl, what it felt like to me, you know, because we were taking tight turns and, you know, making multiple, multiple approaches and rounds to just, you know, cruise by and see these guys. And it was so quick because, you know, you'd make a pass and then immediately have to take a left turn to, you know, start the circle again. So honestly, in the back, I kind of, in my head, I was thinking like, uh, I, I don't really know. 
mm-hmm. what we're going to do here. And I don't know if we're going to be able to do it because I, I just never had anything to compare that to. Yeah. Nice. So you guys did a couple passes. Were you, um, uh, I, I mean, you guys talked about performance calcs were like kind of, they're, they're pretty good and helpful, but was it, uh, t- talk to us about like getting into a hover or picking orientation and stuff. Uh, so yeah, uh, that was, in my mind, one of the most challenging things was just trying to get into a hover. Uh, I, to this day, I have no idea how many approaches we made. Um, once we finally found the guys, um, uh, during our passes, like we saw some lights about a quarter of a mile down slope from the fire that we originally thought were the firefighters. And we're all, you know, at that point, our confidence skyrocketed. <laughs> um, then they told us, no, that wasn't the right flashlights we were looking at. Um, we found <laughs> down the right flashlights and they were like on the fire line. Um, so at this point, like, uh, like, like we talked about the canyons running North to South and the, uh, the fires on the East Ridge of this Canyon. And we're trying to make approaches pretty much parallel to the fire line. Um, just trying to get in there. And we had, you know, we had the Todd card, which turned out it was almost spot on by the time, you know, we got on scene with the CDU, you know, and we hit, I think it was like, 87, 8,700 uh, pounds is right when the CDU said we had a 10% torque margin. Um, the challenge was just making the actual approach, like making the approach with a 10% torque margin was freaking hard. <laughs> like, I, uh, there's no words I can say to describe how hard it was. Um, but so we were just kind of trying each direction, like trying to do all my hat stuff that I learned at hats and, um, doing high-low recons, wind train analysis, all this other crap. And it was just complicated with the updrafts and stuff from the fire and not being able to see anything was, I think, the hardest part. Because um, I think the, there wasn't much wind, but the fire, the heat from the fire was kind of pulling the air from the valley um, up to the east. So the only winds I think we had were um, from west to east. But that, you know, we couldn't get the nose into the wind so we could flying right over the fire on our approach. Uh, so we're trying to do it without flying over the fire. Um, but every time we'd get close to that little clearing they had cut, you know, we'd run out of power and have to fly down slope over these trees and these canyons. And it was, uh, it was not fun. My, like my confidence on every approach just got lower and lower. Um, it was even harder because there was ridges on, every, on the north side and the south side. There was taller ridges than the ridge we were going to. So the one I really wanted to do that put the fire out the right side so I could see everything good um, had us so high from the altitude I deemed safe at this point, we had to do like a 15 foot hundred or 1500 foot per minute rate of descent to get over that ridge to the clearing, uh, which anybody can tell you you're going to need a hell of a lot more than 10% torque margin to arrest your rate of descent. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did probably, in my mind, five to 10 approaches with yeah. fly up. Um, for easily 10 I would say um, and then you know obviously the fuel kept ticking down at that point um, but we finally uh, found a good route and it was that same route over the ridge it was just like we got like you know just belly over the trees of that tall ridge and then um, the one thing that did work with hats um, that you know kind of the Coast Guard breaks you uh with your whole transition point and uh the emphasis on that is like transition point kind of puts you in too fast of a approach to your landing when you're doing confined area stuff so i just kind of once i got over those trees on that ridge line like slowed way back and pretty much just did a high hover taxi 
you know, for the last thousand feet on final um, until we got over that um, spot and we're able to get into a hover on that last one. Um, But at this point, had we lowered our bingo at this point? No. No. Okay, we're still at a 400-pound bingo. To where? Reading. To Reading. Okay. That was our only fuel spot. Yeah, if you're following along, there's an airport in Weaverville. We don't have any gas there, any agreements with with them, or there's no, I don't think there's contract fuel or anything there. So, um, Reading was the closest place. But yeah, we got into a hover, and then uh, we were pretty high, but guys in the back can probably take over from there. Um, What were you guys thinking at this point? I think we we really kind of talked about it as soon as Mr. Schmel said that he felt comfortable. He's like, you know, let's I, during some of the passes. I know that we were like, all right, we're you know, feel we're burning down, we're burning down. All right, maybe we can see if we can get one of these guys or you know something. Let's just let's give it a shot and see if we can just get you down there, you know, something or other. And so I think once we finally got into an established hover, and Mr. Schmel, I remember him saying the words like, all right, this this feels good. Let's try it. So, uh, so we hooked up and th- the plan was that I was going to head down to the mountain Ridge and assess the patients and see if there was at least one priority patient that we could get out of there first. Um, so I was, I was going to go down the litter would follow behind on a second hoist. Uh, and, and we would do the packaging and, and try and get everything back up. But I mean, from the get go, like we kind of knew we were on a constraint. So basically I was told like, look, if the, if I tell you to, Oh, this is the other thing too, was I told Mr. Shermel, like, well, I can just get this guy packaged up and I'll just stay down there. Right. <laughs> you guys can go land and just come back and get me. And, and thankfully he said, not a chance, buddy. <laughs> like, yeah. You're, I was like, you know, it'll be fine. Like in my head, I'm like, I'll just run down this mountain. If <laughs> it really, if the fire starts coming, like I'll find a way out of the way. But, you know, luckily cooler heads prevailed and Mr. Schmel's like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. Like, here's the deal. If, if we just get critical, you just, you, I will radio down there. You hook back up and, and you just need to come straight back up. So yeah, you got it. Yeah. Graham, to just so, to give a visual to the, to the listeners here. I mean, you had feet on the ground. What was the, what was the angle of that, that hillside and, and how close was that fire to the uh, extraction point? So I'm not really good with like math or angles or anything like that. Maybe, maybe uh, you, you've, if you're, if you ski at all, maybe it was like a, is it like a blue square? Is it a black diamond? Like how steep was it? <laughs> yeah. Am I striking out? Triple black diamond. Yeah, no, uh, no, I'd say like, I, I would give it a solid, you know, 38 to 45 ish at the max. Like it, there were fallen trees that I could hold on to and scramble up, but it definitely was like walking, you know, like at a 45 degree angle, like, like trying to scramble up a hill. Wow. Yeah. It was definitely a good scramble if you, if anybody rock climbs. So, um, but like I said, there were fallen trees that these guys had kind of knocked down that I could kind of get up and over. So the, the first hoist, uh, I, I went out the door and Tyler, you got the, uh, you got the, actually, you want to talk about the first voice? You go for it. Yeah. Now. So, you know, we were setting up for the first voice. Wait, wait. This, is uh, Tyler, <laughs> this is Tyler's first voice on a star game. So. Yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. Tyler. <laughs> Thanks. But, uh, so yeah, we were, we set up and 
like they were saying, Mr. Schmel said it felt good and we were going to jump right into it. And so me and Graham were just pretty much sitting there ready, waiting for the word to go. So once he said, you know, this feels good, we were going at it. And I just remember getting Graham hooked up, low checking him, put him out the door and I look down and I'm like, whoa, that's far. Definitely, <laughs> it was definitely, I knew right off the bat, I was like, this is the highest I've ever hoisted from. I was like, I don't even know if we're going to have enough cable. And right as that thought is going through my mind, Graham looks at me and he goes, watch the cable for the candy cane. And I was like, yep, I got you. So, you know, we do a direct down and uh, I'm getting them down. And so the firefighters had left some smaller trees, which honestly from a helicopter looked like bushes, looked like small bushes, but they were, they were about 10 foot trees left standing and so as I'm putting Graham down uh, I'm looking up back and forth between Graham and the drum just waiting to see the candy cane start and uh, sure enough it starts coming out so I just throw it out there I'm like we're, we're running out of cable and Graham's not even on the ground yet so I so um, I can actually see Graham putting his arms forward as almost it's like hey it's a vertical surface and I need some positive contact so at that point, I start kind of conning us down and to the right to get him onto the ground and get his feet planted and get him, give him some sturdy stability. And uh, so that it was a long hoist. I, I want to say you were getting hoisted down for like two, almost three minutes straight of just yeah. it the was, ride. It was eerie, to be honest with you. I, I, I've been on some like long, uh, some high hoist over the water, but this one was this was definitely different over the, uh, over the land because at a certain point, you know, it, it started to get quiet. Like the further you get away from the helicopter, like the noise kind of dies down a little bit and like it got quiet and got super eerie. And then all that was running through my head and I was like, man, if these guys lose an engine, I'm just going through these trees. And it's going to suck. So it would like suck. that's what was running yeah. through my head. And I was like, this is taking forever. Like, why is it so, so long? And then finally, I felt, you know, I felt us moving towards the, uh, towards the mountainside. Tyler put me right into that stinking tree. <laughs> nice. And so I just grabbed hold of that tree and, and held onto it. And, and then eventually, you know, he lowered, lowered down a little bit further and I disconnected from there and, uh, and, you know, gave the okay symbol and started scrambling up those trees to where they had these guys planted on the ground and started speaking with the incident commander. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, shout out, shout uh, out to you, Tyler. I mean, I feel like so many hoists we get into, we just kind of, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is our hoisting altitude. This is how we're going to make it happen. And, and, uh, having that thought to like, Hey, I need you to go down. I'm assuming you guys went down 25, 30 feet. Cause you were probably already at uh, what? 240 feet on a cable length almost already. Oh yeah. At least 20 to 30 feet. But, uh, you know, there, we were surrounded by trees too. So we had to like, kind of maneuver our way across and down. And uh, unfortunately there wasn't really any avoiding that tree for Graham. No, I was happy about the tree. <laughs> At least it gave him something to hold on to, but I had, I'd run out of cable. So pretty much what he was waiting on was us to come to the right, avoid some trees and then get to an opening where we could come further down and right. So he could get to the ground. How, how close were you guys uh, from the pilot's perspective up front, like laterally to trees on the uh, cliff side? Were you getting pretty close to, <laughs> since you're so high up? Uh, 
yeah, we, so like for my team, the left seed, we started hoisting like treetop level and we're talking like redwoods, right? So they're 200 something feet, like 300 feet high. Uh-huh. And that's why we had to come down, obviously. So once we started coming down, there were at least, there was four or five trees right off the nose and to the right. And, uh, I mean, they were, I don't know. They were everywhere. I don't another, know. Another, yeah. another yeah. rotor yeah. Another rotor yeah. I Clarence, I would say. You you guys were facing south for the hoist or north? Facing north. Facing north. Okay, so did you have uh, down into the left uh, if you lost an engine, or were you guys committed at that point? We, we think so. It yeah. would have been, like been a full left pedal, full left cyclic, mostly full left. nose down. I think, most but most left. Yeah, we probably could have made it. A sweet roller coaster ride. Good luck, yeah. Graham, down there below. Yeah, not for me, buddy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sorry. I just had to ask that. Keep going, guys. You're like what? below the trees of the or the I leaves know. of the redwoods out to the right side. Yeah, like, oh my goodness. So you yeah, they're they big boys. Oh yeah. So you get so Graham, you got down. Then uh, what happened after you you disconnected? Uh, so once I made my way up the hill, it's like maybe twenty five feet uh, of kind of like a little scramble up the hill, and they had both both guys uh, on backboards and covered with these mylar blankets but for whatever reason as soon as i walked up on them is when like the rotor wash must have hit and just blew the blankets right off the top of these guys they had them all packaged up real pretty like but just blew these blankets all the way up the hill awesome and so you know that's fine i had to do an assessment anyway so i started looking them over i'm talking to the uh, incident commander and i'm like hey listen so who's who's uh your first priority like because i might only be able to get one person out right now He's like this guy, and it was going to be uh, it was going to be the head and neck uh, patient because apparently he had lost consciousness and was in and out. So like, all right, cool, not a problem. So I was only able to grab like quick a quick assessment before uh, radioing up to these guys and saying, all right, we're we're ready to go. I I didn't want to spend any more time down there. Than obviously, we needed to. Mm-hmm. So I radioed up, ready for the litter. You know, send it on down. And so Tyler started a, uh, 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 a trail line on that litter, right? Or did you do that? Yeah. No, we didn't have time. Okay. We, you were, guys we, were, so, we were so out of gas that we were like, we'll give it our best shot. Yeah. We started putting the litter down. and got about halfway down. Yeah. And we're like, this, we're out of time. And then you're like, this isn't going to work. And right. so we just aborted the hoist. And, yeah. So that's exactly. So that's, so while I was down there and, and, and speaking of this guy, I was like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pack this guy up. I'm going to take him, and then we're going to head out. We'll probably come back for uh, the other patient later. We just got to see what's going on. So um, once we once we got going and I saw the litter coming down, it just started taking this really big swing, like, like, a, like a big giant loop underneath. I could tell, like, the rotor wash caught it, and it started making, like, a real big loop underneath. And just the further it came down, the bigger that loop got. And it started – swinging a lot closer to the trees than I was comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So I got on the radio and I guess these guys were already talking about it. Uh, but I was like, Hey, this isn't going to work. Like that, that thing's getting way too close to the trees and it's just swinging pretty crazy. So, um, as soon as, and no long, no uh, sooner had I said that the litter went back up and I think Mr. Owenby got on the radio. I was like, yeah, the bear hook's coming down and you need to get on it. We're out of gas. And so, Really, that's that's exactly what happened. Is that they brought the litter back up, and I looked over to the incident commander and I told him, I was like, 
listen, we're too heavy uh, and we're running out of gas. I was like, we're going to go and they're going to pick me up and we're going to land somewhere and we're going to come up with a new plan and, uh, and have to come back. And he's like, okay, you got it. And, uh, no, you know, no sooner than I said that, the hook came down and I hooked back up and was on the way up. Nice. Um, uh, well, we really haven't heard too much from you, Adam. What, what was it like sitting left seat on, uh, this whole experience? Uh, you know, like, like I said, it was my first case. Um, so maybe I just didn't know any better. Uh, or maybe Derek's just that good. I, I don't know. I honestly thought everything was going really well. Nice. Um, <laughs> no, but it was, like I said, being in the Canyon there and then more, more or less surrounded on three sides by trees and or fire, obviously, uh, seemed pretty unique, I would say. Yeah. It, it was uh, a lot going on. Yeah. We don't so. train that at HC. No, I, I remember my first case and, uh, I was flying with a Blake McKinney who's been flying for a long time and. I didn't know where we were until we were hovering over the person up in the northern part of San Francisco Bay. So I, I hear you, man. It's just, I'm just, you're just there sometimes. Yep. 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 All right. Uh, Shakes, we got any other? So. Uh, I'm just like trying to put myself there. It sounds, it sounds pretty gnarly. I know. Same, same. <laughs> I think I'd be man. like, hey guys, let's just go home. Yeah. Like, uh, do you guys really want to do this? Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome. First attempt. You pick up Graham. Um, where are we headed? Yeah, so I guess also when we were, as we were, all this was unfolding, we were taking bingo down um, incrementally. I think we got down to, what, 300 or so. And uh, we're bingoing to Reading, like we said. Because mm-hmm. um, that was the closest place. So Easy flight there, or are you guys bouncing over mountains the whole time? I'm sorry, say again? Was it, is it pretty easy transit down to Reading, or are you guys kind of threading through some canyons and, and picking your way down there? Uh, I mean, it's mountainous the whole way, but it's the transit between Arcata and uh, Redding is one that we do fairly frequently. Again, not at night, but um, okay, it's, it's still mountainous until you get into the valley there where Redding is. Yeah, okay. we we climbed up enough that we didn't have to um, avoid canyons and ridges and stuff like that. Had, a, uh, had enough about, fun for the first two thirds of the bag, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah Derek. Yeah, it was it was just a weird feeling going to Redding. It's like 15, 20 minutes to Redding. And you just feel like this, I don't know, it was weird in the aircraft. Like, we weren't, you know, obviously couldn't see each other, really, but you just tell everybody felt a little bit um, uh, downtrodden, I don't know the right word is. Deflated. Deflated, yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of started talking about what we could have done better and then just kind of decided to focus on landing and uh, coming up with a new plan. Honestly, like, I fully expected to land in Reading and our command probably not let us go back, but I didn't really want to bring that up in the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of, you know, it, I just figured as soon as I told them we weren't able to hoist anybody, like they would be like, all right, this is too risky. And you're not, you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, go ahead and just stay the night ready type of a deal. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, kind of just focused on getting the reading. Um, command center did a great job getting us gas. Uh, we're having a fuel team ready for us in reading and landed there and shut down. And, um, started uh coming up with a new plan after that yeah uh just quick backtrack because i know adam downplayed himself a little bit but uh how did adam do for you derek as far as a uh, safety pilot uh he was awesome like like i said from you know start to finish like he without any tasking did all the performance planning um and then getting into the canyon i touched on it a little bit but um i kind of 
if I would have talked about it too long, we would have been here too long again. But yeah, he definitely uh, did a awesome job backing me up um, before we started making those approaches, you know, while we were doing the approaches. And then, you know, once we got pretty much once we started making approaches, like my sole preoccupation was trying not to kill everybody. Uh, so he, um, in essence, was doing all the aircraft commander um, PIC type duties from the left seat on his very first SAR case. So, um, yeah, I can't say enough good things about Adam and Tyler and Graham. And honestly, well. coming straight from T-Course, like you guys train us up to be good safety pilots. And, and when I say that every everything seemed like it was going good, I guess it was like you, we had been put in that position to, you know, get everything ready and think on our feet and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think overall training program everywhere really kind of set everybody up for success. So, yeah, thanks for the shout out. All right, listeners. Uh, so that's, that's halfway through our story with that, uh, that crew from Humboldt Bay. Uh, again, that was Derek and Adam up front and then, uh, Graham as the rescue swimmer and Tyler as the flight mech. Uh, pretty, pretty harrowing case, uh, pretty difficult uh, situation. Uh, and, and kind of an envelope that we don't normally fly in. So, um, we're on deck at Reading. So all those listeners out there, whether you be a pilot, co-pilot, flight mech, rescue swimmer, just think about where you go from here. So how are you going to execute this case? Are you going to go back? Are you going to talk with your ops boss? Are you going to say, Hey, this, this isn't for us tonight, or, you know, I think we can make this happen. So, you know, how, do, how do we execute this case? Uh, is the risk, uh, worth the uh, gain of, of rescuing these two firefighters? Um, and then how do you prepare for something like this on uh, that RT2 that you do every week or that RT4 that you do every week? How do you push yourself so that you are ready for something that you really can't prepare for? Like how many people do night for surface out there? Not that many. And it's, and it's when you actually have that first case. So I'd like you guys to think about that. We'll bring back the uh, second half of the story and you'll, you'll get some resolution from, from how this crew did it. And uh, for all those senior leadership out there, you know, how do you, how do you work through this case as an ops boss, uh, you know, XOCO taking ops, uh, taking CO calls? Um, how much leash do you give your crews? How much training do you do to prepare them for something like this? All right. Thanks for listening uh, to this episode of the podcast. We really appreciate uh, you guys here. And, uh, and thanks again to the Humboldt crew for joining us tonight.